morning we're going to be in Matthew chapter 8. Matthew chapter 8, verses 1 to 22. And over the next eight weeks, we're going to look at um, kind of the next couple sections in Matthew, covering a, a few chapters actually. We've, we started last year, we took a long time to walk through the Sermon on the Mount, the longest single piece of teaching we have from Jesus. Then in the fall, we backed up and looked at the first few chapters of Matthew uh, to kind of ask the question, who is Jesus? And Matthew paints this portrait by pointing us back over and over to the Old Testament to show how Jesus fulfilled so much of what the Old Testament had hoped for. And now, in chapter 8, we begin to get a glimpse of Jesus bringing the kingdom that he said he was here to bring. He says, repent. Same message as John the Baptist. Repent. The kingdom of heaven is here. And then now Matthew begins to give us these pictures of what it looks like when Jesus brings the kingdom. And so we're going to read uh, Matthew chapter 8, and I'm going to read the first 22 verses. Sometimes when we read our English translations of the Bible, they have these little headers. Sometimes, I'll admit, those are very helpful. But sometimes they can make me separate sections of God's Word um, that maybe we ought to read all at the same time, and you begin to see connections between passages you haven't seen before. So hopefully that will happen for you this week. Let's read God's Word. Matthew chapter 8. When he, Jesus, came down from the mountain, after the Sermon on the Mount, great crowds followed him. And behold, a leper came to him and knelt before him, saying, Lord, if you will, you can make me clean. And Jesus stretched out his hand and touched him, saying, I will be clean. And immediately his leprosy was cleansed. And Jesus said to him, See that you say nothing to anyone, but go, show yourself to the priests, and offer the gift that Moses commanded for a proof to them. When he had entered Capernaum, a centurion came forward to him, appealing to him, Lord, my servant is lying paralyzed at home, suffering terribly. And he said to him, I will come and heal him. But the centurion replied, Lord, I'm not worthy to have you come under my roof, but only say the word and my servant will be healed. For I too am a man under authority, with soldiers under me. And I say to one, go, and he goes, and to another, come, and he comes. And to my servant, do this, and he does it. When Jesus heard this, he marveled and said to those who followed him, Truly I tell you, with no one in Israel have I found such faith. I tell you, many will come from east and west and recline at table with Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob in the kingdom of heaven. While the sons of the kingdom will be thrown into the outer darkness. In that place, there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. And to the centurion, Jesus said, go, let it be done for you as you have believed. And the servant was healed at that very moment. And when he entered Peter's house, he saw his mother-in-law lying sick with a fever. He touched her and the fever left her and she rose and began to serve him. That evening, they brought to him many who were oppressed with demons, and he cast out the spirits with a word and healed all who were sick. This was to fulfill what was spoken by the prophet Isaiah. He took our illnesses and bore our diseases. Now when Jesus saw a crowd around him, he gave orders to go over to the other side. And a scribe came up and said to him, Teacher, I will follow you wherever you go. And Jesus said to him, Foxes have holes and birds of the air have nests, but the Son of Man has nowhere to lay his head. Another of the disciples said to him, Lord, let me first go and bury my father. And Jesus said to him, follow me and leave the dead to bury their own dead. Father, this is your word and it is good. Open our eyes that we may behold wonderful things from your law and instruction. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. 
I want to give you a bit of background on why we're grouping uh, these verses together. So Matthew's kind of big picture outline is that he will have narrative and then discourse. Now discourse is like teaching and talking. So there will be a bit about kind of moving the plot along, narrative uh, stories that are happening, and then there'll be a chunk of teaching. So you see some narrative in chapters 1 to 4, and then you get a big chunk of teaching in chapters 5 to 7. Uh, you get a chunk of narrative in chapters 8 and 9, and then in chapter 10, you get another chunk of teaching. So wh what we're doing here in chapters 8 and 9 is there's actually this, this pattern of three stories and then an invitation to follow Jesus. And then there's three other stories, and there's another invitation to follow Jesus. And then there's three other stories, and then there's this big, long teaching about him sending out his disciples to go proclaim the kingdom. So this morning, we're looking at the first set of three stories, and we're looking at this invitation to follow him. And being the first of the year, I'm, I'm thinking maybe how we're all thinking. Either you're setting resolutions and you're resolved and committed to these newfound habits that you're going to turn your life around in ways you've been looking forward to, or uh, you're scoffing at such an idea of all the other people who are doing that. And you're thinking, I don't need those. I'm just going to be faithful and do what I always do. And January 1st doesn't make a difference for me. But either way, you're probably thinking about new resolutions, new habits, new ways of living. Maybe that we wish we did last year or we hope to do this year. Whether it's January 1st or July 1st, I think there are always things in our life that we hope are reforming and changing and being made new. Something happens, it seems like in January, where everyone thinks, new year, new me. I'm going to adopt these new habits, these new disciplines, this new lifestyle, new diet, new gym membership. And something incredible happens where our whole country is united in the failure of our New Year's resolutions. By the end of January, all of our resolutions, it seems like, have failed. I think because it's really, really hard to maintain momentum. We set out with great intentions, and then we finally just stop. I think our Christian life is really not all that different, though. We set out with great intentions to follow Jesus. Maybe you can remember a time when you first came to know Christ. A time maybe when you first read the Bible for yourself, and the words of Jesus leapt off the page for you. You begin to make connections that you'd never made before. Maybe there was a time that you realized when you got saved, it was a radical transformation. And with great intention, with great commitment, you declared to God and others how you're going to follow Jesus with your whole life. But somewhere along the way, we always fall off. We go through dry seasons. We go through seasons that are hard to maintain spiritual disciplines, are hard to read scripture, are hard to feel like we're really having a close relationship with the Lord. We experience something in our life that doesn't seem to match the way Jesus talked about following him. When Jesus invited people to follow him, it seemed like this powerful call and people would drop their nets and follow after him, leave everything and something in our life just doesn't feel quite that dramatic and climactic. Jesus talked about total commitment and leaving everything and dying to ourselves and following after him. And it sounds so grand and so glorious, but then in our lives, we find it hard to stay committed and motivated. What's with the rub there? Why is it so different in our lives than it seems to be when Jesus talks about it? How come verses 18 to 22 sound great? Hey, this is going to be a hard call to follow me. Foxes 
even have homes, but I don't necessarily, it's not going to be a comfortable thing to follow me. And I've heard sermons preached on that, on discipleship, and it's this rallying cry, and people seem to walk away from a sermon like that saying, yes, I'm ready to put my yes on the table and follow after Jesus. But then, maybe a day or a week, I think for most of us, maybe by the afternoon and dinner time, that emotional high seems to have waned a little bit. Why is it so different in our lives than it seems to be on the pages of Scripture? Why can it be so hard to maintain a commitment to follow after Jesus? I think these 22 verses in Matthew 8 are going to give us a glimpse as to why it's hard, but also what can sustain us in that. Let's look first at the powerful presence of Jesus. The powerful presence of Jesus. Notice the people in this text, first of all. First, we see a leper. Later, we see a a centurion. We see a sick woman, uh, a mother-in-law. And then we see diseased people filled with, uh, oppressed by demons and evil spirits. We see all of these people in the text. And I want you just to wrap your mind around um, maybe how shocking it was for these to be the people that Jesus came to first. Okay? If, if he were coming, and, and let's put Metro Atlanta over uh, the land of Israel 2,000 years ago, let's just say he's not coming to East Cobb first. He might be going closer to Hartsfield-Jackson Airport. Okay, he's not going to the people that are put together, are, are, are acceptable, doing well. No, he, he's actually going to people like a leper who would have been under Old Testament law considered untouchable, had to live outside the community, was unclean, shameful, an outcast. He he would have been coming and interacting with people like a centurion, someone who represented the enemy, someone who had an authority under the Roman government who was oppressing God's people. He came for the sick, for the diseased. He came for women who in this time didn't, have much authority or voice and he came to touch and to heal so we see the people in this text and we also see what Jesus does when he interacts with these people it seems like over and over when you read the gospels Jesus affirms people's dignity and humanity when he looks at the leper he's not seeing an outcast the shameful untouchable unclean one he sees underneath all of that underneath the sores and the bandages and the desperation He sees a human. And instead of just speaking a word, which we know from the next passage he can do to perform a miracle, he speaks a word and heals the servant from a distance. But with the leper, I think very intentionally he chooses to heal by touch. Why do you say it's intentional? Because if you read Leviticus, you know that anyone who were to touch a leper would themselves be considered the same, untouchable. You need to spend time away. We have categories for this now, so it's more helpful to preach than it was three years ago quarantine this is like touching someone with COVID in March of 2020 Jesus would have been considered if anybody was watching like whoa wait wait Jesus you just touched a leper so you catch his uncleanness you catch his shame now you've got to go spend time outside the camp and you're considered unclean but what happens when Jesus touches the leper and this is a, a sermon in itself if we have the time is not that the uncleanness is passed on to Jesus, but what we learn from Jesus is that God is so powerful that what is contagious is actually his cleanness, his holiness, his love. 
So rather than Jesus catching what the leper had, the leper caught what Jesus had. When we see the people in this text and we see Jesus interacting with these people, we see the powerful presence of Jesus affirming their humanity, reaching out and touching what the culture and the world would consider untouchable. <clears throat> we also see him interact with the centurion. You see the way he props up the centurion's faith? He's, he looks at this Gentile, this military leader, not a part of the people of Israel racially, ethnically, and he says, I see in you a greater faith than in all of God's people. Because you don't just believe in my word to heal. I think the reason he's saying this centurion had greater faith is because he understood why Jesus could heal the way that he could. He understood that Jesus' ability to heal was not just miraculous magic that he was grateful to receive, wanted to rub the genie's lamp to get the healing. No, no, he understood you can heal because you have authority. That's going to be the theme of next week's message as we see Jesus exhibit his authority over all the realms of the earth. And in this text, the centurion recognizes Jesus' all-encompassing absolute authority over all things. And Jesus praises his faith. And what's amazing in the Gospels, and we can see it here in Matthew 8, is that Jesus never uses his authority for himself. We never have record of Jesus using his authority to get something for himself, to better position himself for the creature comforts of the world he lived in. Every display of the authority of Jesus is for the sake of others. So we have needy people, cast out people, people who are ashamed of the sicknesses they carry like a leper, people who are not a part of Israel like the centurion, people who are sick like Peter's mother-in-law, I won't make a joke that that might have been the hardest one to heal, the mother-in-law. Because I'm not a cheesy Baptist preacher. But we see him, and it quotes Isaiah here, Isaiah 53, verse 4. He took our illnesses and bore our diseases. Now, Isaiah 53, if you go read it, don't be caught off guard. It says he bore our iniquity and transgressions, and it's talking more about sin. I think there's a recognition in Scripture that all sin, whether directly or indirectly, is the cause of living in a broken and sinful uh, world. All, all sicknesses is caused by living in a broken and sinful world. Sickness exists because there's sin in the world. Because the world's broken. doesn't work the way it's intended to work. So I think Matthew is, is exchanging those words to make a parallel here. And saying that all sickness is going to be healed and he takes all of our sickness and all of our brokenness and all of our diseases and he makes them new whether in this life or in Revelation 21 and 22 when he makes all things new again. And what we see for all these people in this text that come to Jesus that encounter the powerful presence of Jesus is we see them exhibiting some sort of faith in him. I mean, why in the world would a leper approach a rabbi? That's crazy. He would have known that he was untouchable and unclean. So for him to approach someone who was a self-proclaimed rabbi and had followers and was a teacher, surely he would have known the response, right? The rabbi would have said, you need to back away from me. You need to get outside of the camp. No, I am not going to interact with you because I'm a rabbi. I'm a man of the law. And I don't want to be made unclean. It would have taken a ridiculous amount of desperate faith for a leper to approach a rabbi. 
Or, or what about if you're a centurion? One of your jobs as a military leader is to <clears throat> maintain uh, civil obedience to the Roman Empire. It would have been to put down any sort of uprisings. Yet this centurion sees something in Jesus that he has a greater authority than the one the centurion has pledged allegiance to. He sees in Jesus someone with greater authority than the emperor. That would have taken a great amount of faith to put his job and his vocation on the line to say, you have a faith, that, or you have an authority that's greater than the one I serve, the Roman Empire, the greatest empire the world's ever known. You have a greater authority than that. That, that would have taken a great amount of faith. Jesus commends the faith of, of the centurion, and I think all along this we see faith in Jesus. It's, it takes faith to even call out, say, Jesus, I'm going to follow you. I'm going to leave what I have and follow you like these two disciples do in verses 18 to 22. We see in this text, I think, the powerful presence of Jesus as he heals in his miracles. I don't think we need to try to spiritualize and get underneath that. Sometimes the most simple explanation of the text is the one we need to hear. These are miracles that attest to Jesus' powerful presence. But the next thing we see is the costly call of Jesus. Matthew positions these in his narrative, not chronologically. Day one, Jesus did this. Day two, he interacted with the centurion. Day three, he's at Peter's house. He's taking all these stories of Jesus and he's putting them into this narrative to make a point about who Jesus is and what it demands on our life. And he's saying, miracle, 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 a call to follow Jesus. And he's trying to help us see that this Jesus is worth following. But to follow Jesus, to be invited to follow Jesus, is a costly call. We see two interactions in verses 18 to 22. One of them makes a very bold declaration. I will follow you wherever you go. That's like the New Year's resolutions of declarations to Jesus. It's a big commitment. Probably, now look at the context here. Miracle, 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 bold declaration. It sounds like an emotional high to me. Like, could you imagine seeing some of the miracles of Jesus and, and getting excited and you see one, you see two, you see three, and you say, I'm going to follow you. I'm seeing what you're doing. I'm going to follow you wherever you go. And rather than Jesus capitalizing on the emotional high, he actually wants to bring a dose of reality to this blessed disciple and say, actually, it's not as comfortable as you might think. He tempers this disciple's excitement with a dose of reality. Following me will not be easy. Because foxes have holes and birds of the air have nests, but the Son of Man has nowhere to lay his head. Then Jesus tells another disciple that following him requires a greater commitment than even to one's own family members. Let me first go bury my father. <clears throat> now, was his father, did his father just die and he needed to go bury him? I mean, funerals didn't happen the way we think of today where it's like, death three days later funeral so Jesus wasn't saying hey I know your father's funeral is scheduled for Thursday but you need to miss it I, I don't think that's what Jesus was doing <clears throat> a lot of scholars think what was happening here <clears throat> is that his father actually hadn't died yet and maybe what he's saying is hey let me take care of my dad in these last years of his life and then and then kind of once I'm done with that then, then I'll come see what you're about and I'll follow you I think either way, though, there's trying to be this commitment to follow Jesus, and Jesus seems to pour water over and over in the gospel. He seems to pour water on this. 
Like he seems to actually try, he's get great crowds, right? That's what we want, great crowds. And then he seems to whittle them down with these hard sayings or these, this, this whole idea of like, you want to follow me? It's going to be really challenging. You, you might want to think of, why don't you sleep on it? And that's just not how we think of inviting people to follow Jesus. <clears throat> Emotional highs are a bad foundation for following Jesus. Why? Because following Jesus is very costly. Emotional highs will not sustain you on the hard days. Emotional highs will not sustain you in the difficult seasons. Emotional highs will not sustain you through times of suffering and persecution that are guaranteed for a follower of Jesus. Emotional highs will not sustain you when you are faced with the reality of all that you've given up to follow him. An, emotional, um, an emotionally high commitment to Jesus cannot sustain a lifetime of following him. It's exactly that, an emotional high. So then when your emotions go low, what do you do then with your commitment? Besides beat yourself up and try to remind yourself of what you said you'd do yesterday. <clears throat> so what will sustain you? What will sustain you to follow Jesus when you find, like him, you don't have a place in this world to call home? What will sustain you to follow Jesus when it means turning from family relationships? Because they've drawn a line where you've tried to continue to love and care for them and share the gospel with them. And following Jesus means you have to turn away from those families or because of the cultural meaning of what it means to follow Jesus. And maybe your family cast you out and treats you as if you didn't exist anymore. Like some of our brothers and sisters in the East Muslim countries or in other Asian countries where Christianity might not be legal. What can sustain us in following Jesus when it becomes difficult? When it becomes culturally taboo to follow Jesus? To believe in these archaic texts that are so oppressive and how dare you tell me there's one way to have eternal life? How dare you tell me about the Bible's view of ethics and what it means to value human life. How dare you tell me what marriage is? How dare you tell me that this is how people ought to live? That might be true for you, but it's not true for me. What's going to sustain us to follow Jesus when it's not easy? When we're tempted to throw away all that it means to follow Jesus because we have pressures from within our family, within our friendship, from within the culture and our schools and our jobs to abandon the way of Jesus and adopt something else. What can sustain us. I think what can sustain us is if when we read Matthew 8, we identify with the leper and the centurion and the sick and Peter's mother-in-law. Here's what I mean. What can sustain us for a lifetime of following Jesus is having a personal encounter with Jesus. Only a personal encounter with Jesus can sustain us for a lifetime of following him. So if you read this passage and the people of the first 17 verses are others in your mind, other needy people, other unclean people, other ashamed people, other people who have great needs and need to come to Jesus with them, then it's going to be hard to live out verses 18 to 22. But if you can read the first 17 verses and you can identify with the leper, that you have nowhere else to go, that you're cast out and unclean 
and a sinner condemned to eternity apart from God. If you can identify with the desperation of needing to come to Jesus because you have nowhere else to go, then you'll have a much easier time living out what it means to follow him. Only a personal encounter with Jesus can sustain a lifetime of following him. As I was thinking about that, I'm thinking about the story of, I believe it was Christopher Wren, encountered three bricklayers. And uh, the story's a couple hundred years old, but he, he encountered these three bricklayers and he asked all three of them the same question. He comes up to the first person and says, what are you doing? The first person says, um, I'm a bricklayer. I'm laying bricks to work my job and feed my family. <clears throat> he comes up to the second bricklayer and he says, what are you doing? And the second guy says, I'm a builder. I'm building a wall. I'm laying these bricks to build a wall. And then he comes to the last person and he says, what are you doing? And he replied, I'm a cathedral builder. I'm building a great cathedral to the Almighty. Now these three people were doing the same task on the same day under the same conditions. Laying bricks. But they all three had a wildly different view of why they were doing what they were doing. One of them couldn't see past the bricks that were just being laid down in front of them. The other one could see a little more perspective and could see a wall being built, but the third one had the view of everything. He had the view not just of the bricks, not just of the wall, but not even just of the cathedral, but of the one to whom the cathedral was meant to honor and to glorify, building a cathedral to the Almighty. I think a personal encounter with Jesus is like having the motivation of that third bricklayer. The personal encounter reminds us of why we follow Jesus. If we don't have that reminder, then we forget why we're following and we only become focused on the task of following Jesus. We go to church, we attempt to read the Bible, we try to pray, maybe we give a little money here and there. Someone comes along and asks, what are you doing? And we might answer, I'm doing my spiritual disciplines. I'm doing my best to go to church. I'm trying to be a good person. I'm reading my Bible. But if we see ourselves like the leper who needs a personal encounter with Jesus, like the centurion who knows his servant can't be healed any other way than a personal encounter with Jesus, if we see ourselves as someone who is desperately in need and then received Jesus' powerful presence, then we might answer the question, what are you doing like this? I'm following the one who saved my soul. I'm following the one who has absolute authority. I'm giving my life to know and love the one who knows and loves me. And it puts in perspective everything of what it means to give our life to follow him. It means we read the command of, hey, it's not going to be easy to follow me. And the details of what all it means to follow him kind of fall away because we're looking at the one we're following because we've had a personal encounter with him. This is why I think this whole text is really about faith. And this is why I think Jesus highlights faith. Because faith in Jesus means we entrust our lives into his hands. That's what the leper was doing. The leper made himself vulnerable. He approached this rabbi who had this following and said, if you will, you can make me clean. He made himself vulnerable because Jesus could have replied, you need to get out now. But faith meant that he entrusted himself to Jesus. If you will, you can make me clean, which implies if you don't will, you cast me out. He entrusted himself 
to Jesus. Faith means we entrust our lives into his hands. When we entrust ourselves to Jesus, two things happen. One is we receive the healing and the redemption that Jesus brings. We receive the cleanness of his touch. We receive the salvation of being restored to dignity, our shame covered, our guilt forgiven. We receive salvation. We receive wholeness and healing when we entrust our burdens and our problems to him. He carries them and he brings us wholeness and healing in his presence and brings us back to God. But the other thing that happens with faith when we entrust our whole selves to him is that we give our whole selves to following him. And we begin to live out Romans 12, 1 and 2, where we're not conforming to the ways of the world, but we're being transformed by the renewal of our mind because we are presenting ourselves to God, our whole selves, our bodies to God as a living sacrifice. So faith is this act of entrusting our whole selves to Jesus for both healing and wholeness and following him. But if we try to make an end run around the personal encounter that comes with the healing and the wholeness of recognizing his saving, gracious touch, and we try to make an end run around that just to get to the following and the disciplines and the New Year's resolutions and I've got to do these things and I'm ready to follow you wherever you go, Jesus. And we don't have the personal encounter. And following Jesus will come in fits and starts for you. And it might mean that you're fooling yourself into believing that you're a follower of Jesus when you're not. What you are is you're a religious person trying your best to do religious activities to get on the good side of your creator. But what Jesus invites you into is to see yourself as the leper who has the sickness of sin and needs the healing touch of the Savior. That he would see you everything about you the things you don't want to be forgiven for because you don't want to admit you've done and you come to him in desperation and say if you will you can make me clean and he looks you square in the eyes and he reaches out his hand and he touches you and in that moment you realize he really loves me That will sustain a lifetime of following Jesus. A lifetime of following Jesus, a lifetime of loving Jesus can only come from a personal encounter where you first receive the love of Jesus. Let's pray. God, thank you for your word where you have shown us who you are and you have invited us into a personal relationship with you. Not just to study facts and theories, to read stories of history, but actually to be invited into a relationship with the same Jesus of Matthew 8. Someone who sees the depth of our need, the depth of our shame, the depth of our guilt, the depth of our problem, and reaches out to touch us in love. Christ, your touch is a healing touch. It's a redemptive touch, and I pray that we would receive it this morning. I pray for all of us this morning to have a personal encounter with you, maybe for the very first time. That for the first time, someone here this morning would begin 2023 by entrusting their lives to you.
opening up their hands and saying, Jesus, I need you to heal me and I want to give myself to follow you. And God, I pray for those of us in this room that have been following you and have been changed by you. I pray that this year we would not try to make an end run around the personal encounter that we need. But I pray we would set our sights on having a personal relationship with you, a personal encounter with you every single day. Fellowshipping with the one who loves us. Seeking to know you better and to receive your love. So God, work in our hearts and change us as we read your word in Jesus' name.